Welcome to Beyond Religion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. We're at episode seven of 12 for season one. And today I'm really excited to share this conversation with my friend and colleague, Jake Hall. This is a long one. And I've thought about splitting it into two parts, but you know what? Uh, You're sticking with me. And so I'm going to trust that you'll find your way through two hours of conversation. It starts with us being kind of goofy and fun, and then it gets really serious as Jake shares a vulnerable, difficult conversation about leaving church. But vulnerable and difficult is kind of my sweet spot. So we're just going to dive in and consider together what exists beyond religion. Is that a stick in the background? It is. Okay, so here's the story with my stick. Um, There was a man who, it's not even really fair to say that he was homeless because he liked living where he, wherever he wanted to live. Mm -hmm. His name was Lavelle and I loved him very, very much. And he, Mm -hmm. you know how it is that like different folks come by the church office and ask for help. And some of them are just hustling because that's how they survive. Yeah. And then sometimes there's somebody who just like, just wants to hang out, just wants to get to know some new people, just wants maybe a glass of water or, or a cool place to sit for a little while. So Lavelle became not just a regular, but like I would take my kids to see him and he we would right. pick him up and take him to lunch. And yeah. so at some point he had cancer that I suspect <laughs> had he not been old and black and poor and living on the streets and had medical. Somebody would have caught that. Yeah access to regular medical care then somebody would have caught that and he would have been treated and i think it started as prostate cancer and just mm-hmm. grew and grew and metastasized oh which is so, so treatable too yeah. yeah yeah so um it got to the point that he was in and out of the hospital and really did not need to be on the streets anymore so uh my associate at the time tim love moon worked with a group great team. name by the way yeah isn't that great so Tim got him into some elderly Catholic housing or something here. Yeah. New Orleans, this is all important. This is the Lavelle story. So New Orleans, like we're all the way upriver. Mm-hmm. And the place was in the lower ninth ward, which is not only downriver, yeah. it's across the industrial canal. So he would complain that we stuck him out in the country. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we would still hang out and he would still make his way uptown. So by the end of his life, he was on a little scooter and anyway, he died. So he died and left everything to me. <laughs> so I was listed as his next of kin. I mean, I already knew that because whenever right. he was in the hospital or needed meds you got a call. or whatever, like yeah. I always got caught. Like I was the one who would go and it meant I could advocate for him in hospitals, yeah. but they were treating him like a, a an old poor black oh. man off the streets, uh-huh. right? Um, so we had a pretty fun relationship, um, and he listed me as next of kin, and that meant I also had to go clean out his apartment. Wow! Which was so you got his stick. It was a total. It was chaos, and this is. Oh, I'm sure. And it goes like, it's probably ten feet tall. I love. And I it. just, I was just tickled thinking of him, like on that little motorized scooter. Like, where did he find the stick? How did he get the stick? to the building how did he get the stick into the elevator up to his apartment that was on like the fifth floor 
How did you get it down? Did you shoot me it in? Off in the process. Oh my god! I broke yeah, part of it, it off huge. in the elevator trying to get it get it down. Um, which just is even funnier. So I I didn't a lot you know so much of his stuff just wasn't nobody nobody was going to keep it. But um, he had a couple of little things that were really special, and we kept the scooter. Um, so the so Lavelle scooter is still in a closet here at the church, which probably only means something to me at this point. But I have his stick in my office, and I have this little green ceramic pitcher that I keep on my front porch and some of, I brought some of his plants I think I have his plants too um okay so I like that something that was living with him is living with you yeah me too I like that me too he's a sweetheart he was a sweetheart he is still with us I'm sure, sure. um I I think all of this is just going in I think we're not doing an intro because we don't do that we pick up mid-sentence every time we talk <laughs> And so that seems appropriate. So I'll record an intro for like all the the formal stuff. But this is Jake Hall, my friend of um 25 years. Yes, 25 years. Where did we meet? Was it? Oh, was it Jan term? I know it wasn't. Oh, God, we have to tell that story. We have to tell that story. I wasn't even thinking about that story. Um, No, Jake. I mean, people who were in the religion department. Just kind of knew each other. Just kind of knew each other. We were we in that Jim Barnett preaching class together. Yes, but I knew who you were before then. I knew you were one of the congregational studies majors. Yeah, which doesn't even exist major. anymore. It should have been called sociology of religion. Yes, but it was the it was the most cutting edge program in that institution, and everyone treated it uh, like it was like it like was magic quiet. markers and sticky notes. It was really like early design thinking. Oh, yes. And systems theory for congregations. Absolutely. We were doing it, triangles and systems theory mm -hmm. when I was like 19 years old. Oh, it was every tool I actually used as a pastor to survive the experience. And it was good. She, I can remember she had us doing this was Penny Long Marler. She had us doing some workbooks, too, and understanding congregations that that I continued to use those mm -hmm. in other churches, like pulling out my 1996 or seven whatever book and using those tools to understand my context yeah oh no kidding after really i after i graduated and while you were still trying to get enough convo credits to graduate we're gonna tell that story too we don't have to tell all the stories in one all episode. my dirty laundry ma'am <laughs> um i went back and took a class from her like out i got it like i didn't even need it but i wanted to take it uh, and she um, is the reason that I went to Duke for seminary, mm. the sole reason, because I was going to go to Beeson, which would have been a horrible fit, but it was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it would. Well, they didn't let me in. They didn't let seems... you into Beeson? Oh, this was so controversial at the time because, like, I was TAing for Paul Holloway and, oh, well, like, grabbing bagels, grabbing bagels for Penny Marler Long. And uh, they were like, well, if they're not going to take our students who are working for us, then, oh. yeah. And she was like, you don't even need to go there. You need to go to Duke. And I, I had no idea, you know, Duke Divinity School existed. I was still extremely naive. Were, were you not there with, time. well, I guess Perry Wright's my age. And then it sounds like maybe you took, did you take some time off between undergrad and MDiv? Uh, I took a gap year. Okay. I was waiting on Aaron to graduate because we were okay. So Perry Wright would have already been done at Duke by then. No, we overlapped. Did you by just uh, one year, maybe? 
God, I love Perry. Perry was hey, like me. the dude from the Big Lebowski, but like as a surfer Methodist. Yes. Right? No, no, that's fair. He'll yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know what he's up to now. He was yeah, very he's still kind. in that area. We still keep up. We text. He's got two kids. I did his wedding. Of course you did. Yeah. He was very kind when I got to do. And I remember he showed me on a tour. That sounds like Perry. Yeah. He's really sweet. And he what part of what Perry's good at is that he years later will not just remember you, but he'll remember like the essence of you. Oh wow. Sort of I what remember... what you prioritize and 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 what makes you tick. No, I remember like Perry and you and uh the guy that runs that great coffee shop. Cal Morris, and... I keep up with Cal, him too. That's one of my buddies. I... Cal was great. Cal I is lost... great. I lost touch with him over the years, of course, but I, I thought he was wonderful. Yeah, no, he owns Church Street Coffee and Books in Mountain Brook and mm -hmm. um, is constantly pushing poetry and great theological thinking and great spiritual guides. So in a lot of ways, he was smarter than all of us that he got oh, to listen. like keep doing it and doing it on his own terms. I just remember him like, uh, being tired from imbibing too much Camus the night before, right? So like that a deep totally dive tracks. into existentialism Yes, uh, had him a little sleepy in the like entry-level biblical perspectives course, which is such a rich juxtaposition right there. But that was him, right? The first time I met Cal, he had taken a gap year to follow fish. <laughs> and I just didn't even know that people could really do stuff like that. Right. Um. And I thought he was the coolest person I've ever had ever met in my whole life. So we got to know each other in a class that I thought was fitness walking, which <laughs> sounds insane, but we made it fitness talking. <laughs> and I got a C because I walked slowly while I talked fast. That's funny. I don't I I think I did better than a C in that class. I sure well, yeah, you stopped so. talking to me at the final. Did I? Which is oh. insane that we had a final for walking. Oh, that was a written was final like, too. For walking? Wasn't there a written thing about like the the physical benefits of walking? walking? Oh, I don't know, but I, I man, certainly I think wrote there was about a written something. I wrote about the physical benefits of aerobic talking. So, so you mean that there was like a final? How many laps can you get in? And so I actually started booking it. Yeah, at some point, it was more monologue than dialogue for me because you were like, I need to get a B in this class. And you That's just really funny. You started walking fast. And I That's was like, really "What? Funny. but we're in the middle of a conversation here. Well, and I can remember years later um, saying to you at CBF, OK, so I didn't know that we were going to be lifelong <laughs> friends. <laughs> and we got to stop talking about fitness walking because <laughs> that was that was the last semester of college. That's when Nathan and I started dating. And so I was. Oh, I was bemoaning like this guy I was in love with and maybe he doesn't love me back. And sometimes he oh, would I was, break up with me and then we get back together. I was there at the beginning. And so I dumb. remember, yes, I remember the roots of your love when it was first so blossoming. So dumb, so dumb. And we've been my, married for 22 my years. My favorite memory of you, though, is when we, we already kind of knew each other, kind of. And we were on a silent retreat at a monastery. Yeah. And you and oh, what's her name? Maria Burgess. You and Maria Burgess. Thank you, Soul Miner's daughter. Um, knocked on my door and said, um, 
we think that you're funny. Let's get out of here. Okay. And then we left. I have to back up from there. So it it was one of those things that now I understand about myself that I am extroverted enough. I don't know. I've gotten more introverted with time that I might actually enjoy that retreat now. But I was extroverted enough um, that I had sort of like set up my room and okay, now I've decorated my room and I've gone outside and sat under a tree by some water and read a thing and that feels nice. And so I journaled a little bit and all of that took like maybe 45 minutes and then I was just done. And so I had started exploring the building and found an upstairs room. I mean, oh, that's I right. opening doors. So I found an upstairs room that had couches and a record player and some records. Mm-hmm. So then somehow I went back downstairs and Maria and I were sitting in sort of like a parlor space, reading and being silent across from each other. But we started like catching eyes like, mm-hmm. I want to talk. Do you want to talk? And so I motioned for her to come with me and I showed her that room upstairs. So we sat upstairs for a while in the upper room records and talked. And then we were like, who else would come with us? (laughs) Just knew that it would be you. And you, of course, were asleep because you were like, I don't have anything else to do at this side. And we were, it was a fasting retreat too. It was silence and fasting and meditation. Oh my. So we woke you up and we're like, we we think you'll come hang out with us. And you're like, absolutely, I will. And so then I think the three of us went back up to that room where there were couches and a record player. At some point, we decided to sneak out for pancakes. So we had to do that after because we were keeping the hours, right? And so Dennis Sansom, I'll make sure he listens to this because he found it. Apparently, he stalks my sermons sometimes. So he found it in a sermon. And oh, retroactively preached... emailed me and said, I'm going to give you an F in that class. Oh, oh, so... listen, we preached on that passage. Do you remember this? We years later we told we both told this story on the same Sunday. I do. Because the lectionary passage lent itself to it. So funny. Well, so and Dennis keeping... got me too. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so he was keeping the hours, which meant whatever the final one was. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's 10 or 11 or midnight, but there's some sort of like very late night. He's going to read from the Psalter, I guess. Mm. So we showed up for that. Selah. And I vaguely remember, did we put Maria's Jeep in neutral and push it to the edge of the parking lot so nobody would even hear it starting? It was my Jeep. And yes, we did. Oh, it was your Jeep. (laughs) And we played... um, Early Jennifer Nettles, back when she was like a womanist rock folk singer. Oh my gosh! So we pushed Soul, the jeep to the edge of the parking lot, and we drove. Oh, my daughter, yeah. We drove to IHOP. It's true. This was the beginning of ministry. So we ate a ton of food at IHOP because we had been fasting at that point for like a full six hours, maybe. I know college students can't survive for six <laughs> hours. Just like I can't do this. And then, do you remember what we did next? We had Merlot and watched Dirty Dancing at a friend of yours house. I remember that. I don't know that I was drinking Merlot at that point. Maybe. I mean, that would have been junior. I can't remember. I don't remember the Merlot part, but it was definitely Dirty Dancing. We went to Maria's apartment. Yeah. nobody. we puts, watched Dirty Dancing. Nobody puts baby in a corner. That's right. And we yeah. then snuck back into the retreat center to sleep for two or four hours or something. And got back up for the final 
not just Psalter reading, but communion. <laughs> It was supposed to be. It was supposed to be that you're breaking the fast with communion at the end. Oh God! All right. So, um, I think yes. I handed someone a piece of uh, pancake for intention. <laughs> Just kept it in your pocket. Yeah, fallen on my. Well, shirt. I think it's funny that so many of these episodes. I say so many. This is the seventh one. It's not like I've done a million, but it's the perfect number. I didn't mean for it to be so Samfordy. And it's been funny to me how many people I have kept up with from Sanford who are are on a similar path that I'm right. on. Right. Um, right. Not just of this kind of deconstructing, but what is this all about? Maybe it's because we're all in midlife now. Like that's probably True. part of it too. Um, so Jake, we picked up at Fitness Walking, but I don't really know your early story. The rest story. of my story? I don't even really know where you're from. Are you oh, from Georgia? I am. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia. Okay, so near Auburn. Yeah, right near Auburn. Uh, I was in a Christian school founded uh, in the 70s, like so many of them were in the South, mm. from kindergarten until I graduated high school. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was wow. a nearly impenetrable bubble. I did a couple of years at Columbus State and then transferred into Sanford. So Sanford was like a two by four to the head in terms of the academic side of religion, of ministry. You know, I was I was steeped in a kind of Southern revivalism that, you know, is pretty toxic when it comes to human beings. So was there a crisis of faith for you when you oh, got yeah. there? And yeah, I was, uh, you know, like trailing Cal around uh, as a nihilist for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and just believed in nothing yeah. for, you know, like 16 days. 16 um, days. I know, right? Well, you know, deconstruction honestly takes longer than that. But I decided quickly that I didn't believe in nothing, but that I couldn't believe in the kind of God that I had defended mm -hmm. this kind of um, wrathful, uh, abusive God, you know, uh, that needed the crucifixion in order to satisfy a bloodlust. I mean, I knew I had to set that aside and I yeah. was increasingly uncomfortable with the many others that existed inside of that revivalist tradition because yeah. everyone else had to be lost if you were found. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of an awakening for me that Christianity and religion and ministry could look different. Uh, and, but I was also kind of pissed that the religion I grew up with didn't expose me to any other, yeah. you know, any other form. Uh, than this very select sliver. Uh, so I, I that's when I decided I would stay Baptist because I felt oh. like the Baptist had malformed me. On the one hand, they have to take responsibility for what comes of my formation now. So you're sticking it to the Baptists to, by staying with them. I like that. Right. You know, so many of our colleagues uh, grew up in a similar kind of southern gothic fundamentalism and decided yeah. to become the more cosmopolitan united methodist or you know yeah. an episcopalian or 
some tradition that had wrestled with modernism a little earlier, a little better. Um, but no, I, I wanted to be a part of a different kind of Baptist. Uh, and there were voices at Sanford that helped leave yeah. some breadcrumbs towards. Yeah, well, and that was emerging. I mean, we're late 90s at that point. So mm -hmm. things are being born. I'm trying to remember, I think it's Bill Leonard or maybe it's somebody else's story and Bill Leonard tells it about the man who's on a tour in the Holy Land and he's in a separate tour group than the one that has gone into this room ahead, but the door is still cracked and he can hear the tour group ahead of him. Mm -hmm. The tour group ahead of him is saying, this is the upper room where on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his friends and he washed their feet and he broke the bread and he gave them the command to love one another. And so this guy just goes on and on about, this is the room, this is where it happened. And then that tour group leaves. And then this next tour group comes in and that guide says, well, tradition tells us that this is the upper room, but if you look carefully at the beams and the ceiling, you know, architecturally, this style wouldn't have existed until. And so he goes on debunking why that couldn't right. have been the space. And the man says to himself, I sure do wish I could be in the other group. Oh, yeah. And I still have those moments. Right. Of missing the certainty and mm -hmm. the warmth the warmth that came from that not just the comfort of christian conformity as pete holmes says but <laughs> there was a warmth in those stories that I well and that that worked well I, I recognize the privilege of why that worked well for me as like a middle class white straight guy in that time right yeah. So my entire religious upbringing told me that I could be used by God, that I was called by God, and that I could be a pastor. And I know that wasn't everybody else's story. And so yeah. it's interesting how that warmth and certainty for one person uh, becomes uh, something that singes and burns for another. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and the the certainty cuts like a knife to anybody that's on the the outside. You're so right. There are a lot of aspects of it that could only be safe and warm for me because of those points of privilege. Outside of school, outside of church, did you have some personal sense of calling or early early memories of God's spirit that either aligned or didn't align with what you were being told? Our family always placed ministry within the like imaginative set of professions that was available to me. Like mm. it was a good thing to do or be not just like a doctor or lawyer or fireman or, you know, anything that a child might drum up in their imagination. But ministry was always in that list from a very young age in part due to like a history of that being in the family. So mm -hmm. we had a bunch of ministers in the, in the previous generations and my uncle was a Southern Baptist minister. And so that sense of calling, it was an expectation uh, that one use their life for Christ, whatever they do 
but all the more so wouldn't it be great if you felt called to do this mm. and so that was a part of my formation at home it was certainly a part of the narrative at church um, and I had a good experience uh, in the community that surrounded church yeah. socially uh, as much as the theology bore that kind of revivalistic fervor um, it was also family for me and so um, that's that sense of calling is hard to separate for me it was certainly a voice of the church in my life it's also a voice in my family um, and and led me directly towards ministry from you know since I was 17. So by the time you got to Sanford you were already clearly on that path you had to Duke it, Divinity School Oh yeah. It was why, it was why I went to Sanford, my pastor for, for all of his, um, for all of the things that, you know, he drew from that kind of Luther Rice academic tradition and he, um, was entrepreneurial. Uh, he was more complex than the kind of evangelical culture that surrounded the church. And I always appreciated that about him. Um, he valued Sanford. And so his son, my dearest friend in this world went to Sanford as well. Uh, he now teaches at Baylor in patristics, uh, and they, they were very quick to kind of tell all of the preacher boys in the church that Sanford was where you should go. So I went from there to Duke. Uh, I got married in between Sanford and Duke. Yep. Um, and then had a great experience there. It kind of deepened that sense of, oh my God, there are other kinds of Baptists here. Mm -hmm. So there's the Baptist house at Duke. So you're connecting mm -hmm. with all, all sort of folk there. Right. But in an ecumenical setting, which has yeah. continued to broaden the lens there. And you did not go straight into a pastorate, though. You went and did the Wilshire residency after Duke? Yes, yes. I got a call um, from Curtis Freeman, our Baptist house director, that encouraged me to apply for this brand new program. Uh, so I was in the first class of Lilly-funded residents. Jay Hogwood, your previous guest, was the very first, like, proto-resident there. Okay. Which you had created right before they got Lilly funding. Uh, and so, you know, it was this amazing sense of, like, Grey's Anatomy, but for ministers, yeah. right? And so you went through as an inexperienced yet well-trained minister through different aspects of the work and it was like holding up all the facets of a jewel uh, to the loot and allowing the light to hit it just right so that you could see the many different parts of being a pastor mm. and I relished that experience it was wonderful Jay of course was hospitable and hilarious and has it changed a bit I know uh, he was so very kind uh, as we overlapped there uh, but that church continues to be, in a very real way, uh, a home church for me all these years later. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I certainly didn't have anything that was formal like that, but in a lot of ways, Baptist Church of the Covenant functioned that way. Right. That I just got not, not necessarily thrown in, but invited in and given <laughs> a remarkable amount of trust that I had not earned at all. And uh, it I was love a that thing. church. Yeah, I, did I was there this week. I didn't tell you this. I was there this week for a meeting. They hosted Good Faith Media's board meeting on which I serve. 
And Baptist Church of the Covenant is another one of those really special places uh, that nurtures a whole person. Well, I'm glad that we're starting out talking beautifully about a couple of churches that we love. <laughs> I'm going to take you down a path in just a minute. I'm going to invite you down a path that, that might have some turns. So you left Wilshire and moved into your first pastorate? I did. I did. So I, not directly from Wilshire. So I left Wilshire so that my wife, Erin, the better Reverend Dr. Hall, could attend Candler. So we left Texas uh, for Erin to go to seminary, and she applied to every seminary that validated women in ministry in a real way, had a connection to Baptist life, and I applied to every church within a commutable distance of those seminaries. And it was this adventurous leap for her calling that led us back to Georgia. And so, in a sense, I had another gap year of as her semester started, we picked Atlanta and I was in conversation with two or three churches in the Georgia, the North Georgia, Central Georgia area. Um, it was important for us to go ahead and move uh, and knowing that the spirit would guide us to the right place, right? And so in her first year of seminary, I was called to a church in Cherokee County, Georgia that I stayed at for about eight years, and I deeply, deeply loved that congregation. Um, it was a story of a church uh, breaking off from a traditional First Baptist in, you know, the, the 90s battles for Baptist identity uh, and finding a, a kind of safe haven for themselves. And I was there at a transition point between their founding pastor and what was next for them and what was next for them became this great outward-facing service to their community. So uh, we were able to do beautiful ministry together uh, in, like, feeding hungry children in the summer. They processed 50,000 sandwiches a summer through their church fellowship hall, and it was manned mainly by retirees and octogenarians I love that. who, you know, received and packed and and organized a lunch delivery service uh, for those experiencing extreme poverty. It was beautiful. And so our, our time there was really, I look back on it with a lot of romance. I'm sure there was times there in which I uh, felt dis-ease, you know, like every Baptist business meeting can get. Yeah. But in large measure, it was a really, really amazing time for us and for them. Well, I think we all grew while we were there. Our eldest son was born there. And then shortly after that, I had completed a D-man at Mercer. We moved to Macon, where I remain. But I am no longer a pastor. So you're no longer a pastor. There's a gap in there. It's not a gap year anymore. <laughs> um, oh, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I was a pastor in Macon for about eight, eight and a half years. And then you abruptly weren't. And so you didn't sign an NDA, right? Oh, no, absolutely not. How much do you want to share about that experience? I want to tell you about the church I loved first. Okay. Which was most of my experience here in Macon. So we were called to this very stately congregation in Macon that had a long history of liturgical sensibility we experienced a vibrant ministry together. 
But like a lot of churches of that size and in settings like Macon, the church is dealing with some meta trends that are happening that are hard for churches that, that were formed in the 50s to accept. Yeah. And it's hard for them to know that because they were formed at a high water mark in American Christianity. Yeah. I feel like a lot of churches, especially those within the Crawford Baptist Fellowship, who look at mega churches that are around them, wonder why there is disconnect. Yeah. Right? So churches formed in the 50s often experienced extremely quick scalability, right? I mean, they went from deciding to form a congregation to having a building to expanding upon that building within five and five to 10, you know, to yeah. 15 years. I mean, this is post-World War II boomer expansions through every institution. Uh, but in the church, it's given a kind of sacred history that is hard to unfurl in the imaginations and generations that come later. And so I can look at churches, uh, you know, there are churches all over the place that kind of lionize those histories. I remember walking through one in Atlanta that probably had 200 active people within the congregation in a 2,200 seat sanctuary. Yep. But the walls had just been decorated with images in sepia tone of a full church. And I thought, wow, there is, there's an imaginative disconnect here. The whole 1950s boom in churches is fascinating to me because it also coincided with like the industrialization of theological education. So you were building buildings at a rate at a scale that's not historically sustainable and that one day the bubble would burst. Yeah. But you're also creating models for ministry academically that have to be serviced by those bustling congregations. And you're creating pastors and associate pastors for every brand or genre of activity that the church might have all the way from senior pastor down to like sports chaplain minister or church rec minister. A I position. know I took a class at Sanford that was it counted as a PE class and it was something like the ministry of church recreation, something the oh. church sport ministry or something. Absolutely. The guy that taught our fitness walking class was a church rec minister that was retired. And that was his job yeah. was to plan intramural activities for, you know, like a league of families for the big gym, you know, that the church had on campus. Um, so I think all of those things that have played into what we see, um, this kind of consumeristic turn in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, where it became not just building it out, but supporting it by way of programming uh -huh. that shifted to how can we meet your perceived needs? families? How can we offer you a plan, a program, or a service that will keep you coming back again, again, and again? And so what began, I think, to fill a lot of these churches uh, was this sense of we have to sustain this level of attendance by way of a consumeristic model. And so we have to maintain all of this or we're not, quote, successful. Yeah. And, and part so, of that need, what are your needs that we can meet, was the need to be entertained. <laughs> are you not entertained? <laughs> 
right? So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see churches that lean heavily into that model, you know, some seeker traditions lean heavily into that model. And you can see the fruit that they uh, have wrought in, you know, a bevy of documentaries on Hulu or Netflix right now. Yep. Uh, I think the new Hillsong documentary just dropped this week. Oh, geez. Uh, but churches that um, are similar to the ones that we have served often adopted like it was countercultural to be liturgical, right? right? Rather than seekery. So the ministers start wearing robes. And oh, yeah. The revised yeah. common lectionary. Yes, yes. We were everything but smells and bells, which honestly, yeah. I, I deeply enjoyed um, that sense of tradition because it was nourishing in ways that my own upbringing was not. And also it provided novelty, right? It was a novel thing uh, to enter into a more liturgical space. But it was clear even upon arrival that we had a dearth in some significant age groups, right? You start looking around and you realize, oh my God, we are only tenuously a multi-generational space here. And yet we are staffed for 1991. Yes. And so the last pastor before me would bump up against this all the time. You know, the staffing structure was built for the past. And so anytime you try to move towards the future, the anxiety in the system just jumps through the roof. I think it had a lot to do with him choosing to exit ministry for a while. Absolutely. You know, I mean, everybody has their own story and I'll let him tell his own, but I know that it is a dynamic that I faced continually was anytime the future would come up. It was made very clear to me that the staff, was untouchable. Hmm. That and you that could change. not change the format, the structure of how many staff and what the positions were. Oh, as a candidate, uh, I was asked to formally request the church not to enforce its policy of requiring the staff to resign. Interesting. Yeah. Apparently they had a policy where upon a change of administration, associate staff would submit resignations and then the new pastor could decide what their structure would be. Oh, wow. And as a candidate, I was asked not to do that. And in fact, to write and request that that not be done. This it was interesting that it, it was, it felt very conditional upon the process moving forward too. Well, uh, and so it we, means the writing's kind of on the wall at that point. Oh yeah. That something and, is very fragile and, and the bubble wrap is being constructed, right? To protect this fragile thing. Oh, there's a lot of anxiety in that. But I mean, yeah. the good thing about that is I like, I have very low ego needs. And so the, the kind of passive aggression you can get out of a system like that is not something that really kept me up at night. Yeah. And that started early and often. And so in, in my story, part of the dysfunction, part of the reason I'm not a pastor is that that existing staff advocated for and got involved in the search process deeply and were advocating for the quote other candidate Oof. and when the church chose me i think they had a hard time with that wow how when do, at what point did you find that out i knew they were part of the process i knew that it got weird 
when the interim called me and apologized because he said that they were using my size as a way to distract from my gifts. The size of your body. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That my girth was distracting them from my gifts. This is the first time I have ever heard a man talk about the congregation discussing body stuff. I mean, women talk about this all the time, all the creepy, weird, inappropriate body questions we get asked. Oh, I got a story for you then. So this is, this is the kind of passive regression that, that would come at me. So a staff member called and said, well, uh, you know, I just want to welcome you to the team. And, uh, well, uh, I just want to bring something up to your attention. Well, since you're, you know, you're going to be with us now, um, um, our, uh, the, the chairs on our chancel are, uh, well, Jake, they're, they're antiques. And, um, I, uh, I just want to call and you were, well, well, you're you. And, uh, the chairs are, they're, um, they're fragile and, uh, well, they have arms on them. And so finally, you know, I'm not one to mince words. And so I, I asked this person, like, are, are you trying to tell me my, my fat ass is too, uh, too big for your old chairs? And they said, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't mean, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, uh, uh. Wow. And I said, you know, here's the deal. I'm going to be your pastor and I'm going to sit wherever I want. And you're not going to need to worry about that. Oh my and he said, uh, well, I've already, I've already uh, reached out to the, the decor and building and grounds to see if we can augment the chair for you. Gracious Lord. And I was like, so there's been a committee meeting about that. Right. I was like, no need, my friend. I'll take a look at it when I come down to go look for a house, but it's not going to matter. I'm going to sit wherever I wish. I wish that this was video because my silence is not silence. It's just, uh, I don't. But, but that kind of uh, constant um, side angled diminishing. Yes when it's organized and persistent can absolutely kill the fruits of a pastoral ministry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I already knew I was going to title this episode death by a thousand cuts because that is what you said to me when you left that job. Was that, oh yeah. That was yeah. the kind of death it had been. But you know, the interesting thing is over the course of time, they were always really bad at it too. Like I think only a certain set of conditions made this kind of like ham-fisted passive-aggressive conspiracy on the part of long-tenured folk who had really been in no other congregation for any length of time it was just always so flagrant or so comical and again i have a really clear sense of who i am in terms of authenticity and so that kind of stuff would just kind of bounce off but it was easy to create speed bumps to change. And so in large measure, I did what my predecessor did, which was to create growth around those things. And, and so, is that part of when gospel Gothic came to be? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a significant part. I could feel the pushback towards change systemically in any kind of program style or anything like that. But the church's life was wholly 
arranged around an insular set of practices, right? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of churches like this. And so I'll speak generally and not just about this particular congregation, but there are so many churches whose entire identity and set of practices is member management built around a very kind of closed loop set of moments, be it Sunday school or Wednesday night supper or choir practice. And if you're not engaged in those things, the church doesn't really consider you a fully fledged human being, mm. member of the church, or not just a stakeholder here, but what is perceived as a stockholder, someone who owns, Ooh. not someone who rents. Say that again. Stakeholder or stockholder. Yes. yes. And this is, again, this is not just the congregation that I once served. I think this is many congregations. Yeah, that's why I like it. Have They've come to a point in their life cycle where they are no longer facing outward. Everything is facing inward. And so they're looking at each other and they see themselves as a collection of stockholders and not just stakeholders. So they, they're the people with equity by way of their presence and tenure yeah. by the treasure that they have offered up and its size or the amount of volunteerism that, that they've done. And anyone else that steps foot on the campus or exists within the kind of existential space of the church merely rents. Yeah. And they let you know, they remind you of that when you have gotten too big for your britches or. Oh, right, steps, right, right. Stepped and across so, some kind of invisible line. One, one of the largest crises in this church before the one that they've just gone through was when a more blue collar church melded with them like 30 years prior. And they had a real crisis because the church was comprised mainly of people of income and position. And they had a hard time with another set of people uh, coming in. So that remained all these like 30 years later or more, a part of their imagination. And so they saw even where they sat in the sanctuary. Yeah. And so the people that sat on one side thought that the people that sat on the other side are the ones that really ran things. It was, it was fascinating to watch play out. You would catch it in side comments and glances, right? Because no one's going to lead with that. Yeah. Every church is going to tell you that they're welcoming to all people. Every church is going to tell you how, what special and amazing ministries that they do because they sing silent night on, you know, Christmas Eve and hold up candles. And they yeah. think that that is the most unique ministry that every church ever has ever had ever. So, um, because it's difficult for, it's difficult for churches to know themselves in the same way that pastors know churches. I agree. And I appreciate you saying that. I do think I have more ego than you <laughs> and have more ego needs than you. And I do think I thought I was a special, special little star coming into this role. <laughs> and I look back, the pastor immediately before me, I came in determined I was not going to be that guy. Right. And where he failed, I would succeed. Oh, like I was, thought I would. I thought I would never be that guy too. Yeah. And the details are always, um, the, you know, they're gilded with the passage of time. And so, you know, taking a position at Mercer here or there or, um, but yeah, a few of them like me and my predecessor and 
the one before the one before that simply left ministry um and you know the they're they are kind of deleted from the church's records right you know one of them famously has no painting in the church's rogues gallery wow. so my predecessor placed his picture in one of the books or boxes in that parlor so that his face would be in there somewhere I, I've always loved that story. When you look at 125 years of history here, right? the majority of the pastors here were here for one to three years. Fascinating. And there, there have been a couple that were sort of seven to nine, and there was one who was 15, and there was one who was 20, but his 20 weren't even sequential. So I, I certainly came in with, if not ego, hubris. Right. Well... I want you to go easier on yourself because like pastoral ministry, especially senior pastoral ministry, like on the one hand, it's easy to pull in folks who do have larger ego needs, but that's not what I'm saying you have. I do think you have to protect yourself from the expectations that are wildly discordant of pastors by creating some sort of personal boundary for yourself in terms of your, your identity. Like you have to know who you are wholly because like churches want everything that you all, you can offer them, and then they want more. And yeah. the temptation is to give it all to them. But they yes. want so many different things from you. Yeah. And they don't know what you do for a living. This is the great unspoken thing between pastors and their congregations. Congregations do not understand the job description of their pastors at all. At all. And so they want an odd collection of like personal projections of what they need, right? Psychologically or spiritually, or they use pastors at any level for transference, you know? And so there's a lot of, there's a lot, there, there's a market of emotional energy between pastors and their congregants that pastors barely understand. And I'm quite sure congregations don't. Mm. I want to talk about gospel Gothic because it's so creative and amazing and you're so good at it. But also was that a way that you kind of worked around all of this? Oh, all of it. Yes. Yeah. So, I, so I was here somewhere in my third year, I realized, Oh my God, if I don't break free of their rehearsal of the best year ever, that they are stuck in, right? So their calendars were all the same for every year since the mid-90s. These same ministries, these same time periods, the only thing that really changed were, were a couple of themes here and there. And so worship was driven by Revised Common Lectionary, which can be done creatively or it can be done by rote. Yeah. Programmatic years had attained a kind of peak excellence late 90s that had simply perpetuated. And so I knew that if I couldn't break free of that in terms of leadership and pushing the church to different places that I would get somehow get stuck with it in it and acquiesce. And also there was there was a level of excellence in those ministries that was still valuable to parts of the church and its current maintenance 
but not to its future ministries or needs. And so the best place to put my creativity and gifts was not in the maintenance of a system that was running like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. It was to step out into areas that the church had no current presence. It's also a very geographically isolated congregation. And so it was set in the kind of the idyllic community in the 50s that was the place to live. But the rest of the whole city lurched in a different direction mm-hmm. in the 60s and beyond. And so it's an island of historic opulence in a sea of abject poverty Oof. in East Macon. And it there's a literal physical river that separates the congregation's 17-acre beautiful campus from the pulse of the city. Wow. And a commitment that I had grown to love and to know in my previous congregation was that if the church is ever going to be authentic, it has to be relevant. It has to be, and not by some cheap, I'm going to wear skinny jeans and sit on a stool, <laughs> authenticity. A pallet wall behind you does not make you That's relevant right. or authentic. Being contextual means being deeply involved in the needs of the people that make up your city. And where is the pulse quickened? And where is the heart broken? And I knew that we needed to be in both of those spaces, yeah. both the spaces that quickens your pulse and excites you and the spaces where your heart breaks. And so that's what I pushed towards in every avenue. And in terms of the heartbreaking side of things, it meant learning a lot more about systemic poverty and the yeah. way that redlining and land usage in Macon, Georgia, um, has created a culture of generational poverty that needs to be abated. And mending the world here is not preaching a sermon. It's going to a neighborhood that's comprised completely of renters and undocumented immigrants and developing authentic relationships. In terms of um, laughing with those who laugh and being in the places where the pulse is quickened, I knew that it was simply being present in this unprecedented amount of growth that was happening in the urban core downtown. And, you know, this aspect of the new urbanism is happening in a lot of cities, this reinvestment in the downtown, um, the return of a hyper-local sensibility about the way culture is created, be it shops or restaurants or or placemaking, right? And Macon had engaged itself in that sense of identity. And so driving to church one day, I was listening to our first local radio station in the past 20 years. And I just nearly wept Mm. because um, it was a song about like real sin and real redemption. It took both seriously. Uh, And it was on the radio. And normally, you know, you can listen to iHeart anything, pop country or top 40 and never get to meaning. And so I, I reached out to these guys who had bought a station out of bankruptcy and just like pirates kind of went out on their own and I got to know them. And so their format was Americana, which I wasn't familiar with, but it's a genre of other genres. 
of singer-songwriter, southern rock, folk, blues, soul, little R&B. So when you say uh, you heard a song that was about real sin and real redemption, you don't mean that you turned on a Christian radio station. I hadn't listened to Christian radio, uh, Mangum, since we walked around the third lap at oh, sure. University. Yeah. Uh, that those was my Cademan's call years. So the last person, <laughs> the last person I had listened to the CCMRs was like Derek Webb singing about his wretchedness. I think I'd um, already given up by then. Oh, uh, that was my my last bit of CCM was Cademan's call, which is deeply coincidental that Derek Webb became an artist that I play every year on That's Gospel great. Gothic in his own kind of new new phase of music. So I had a really boring idea for these guys. I wanted to play my sermon on the radio and kind of frame it with some of their music. And they were like, you are the 12th person that has called and asked for that. Interesting. But we kept having conversations because I was really fascinated by their religious history and I can't help but to pastor the people that I meet. And one of them had a deeply traumatic religious experience with kind of Southern Methodist revivalism. And the other had just given up because he thought colonialism and the church was deeply problematic. Yeah. But, but neither of them said no to God. They said no to the form of church that had somehow hurt them or become irrelevant to them. And so we had one of those lunches that's just more than the sum of its parts. Like yeah. it was great food and great conversation, but somehow having both was really, it was communion. And in standing up, one of them said, this conversation is what we need to put on the radio. And so we started this supported outside the church's budget by donations and sometimes by endowment decisions. And so we sponsored the show. And the three of us would talk about their spiritual questions, about the lectionary passage, and the music would frame the conversation. The conversation would often interpret the music. And so there was this kind of multi-genre dialogue happening with a, a heavy dose of like the Southern Gothic. And so it's called Gospel Gothic because of Flannery O'Connor. Keith Gammons of Smith & Palace had a lot to do with its formation. He was kind of my running buddy diving into this and so we we produced these things and and it was really amazing what would happen out of that and so this sacred secular bridge was created uh, relationally from a church that was highly isolated to this this space that was highly secular and mm. the old way of speaking i say that and the word gets stuck in my mouth it doesn't make sense to me anymore there's yeah. no such thing um, that all space is sacred. You know, yeah, that, Wendell Berry says there are no sacred places and well, there aren't. Oh, let's get it. There are no sacred places and unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Oh, that's it. Oh, we yeah. So there are no sacred places and unsacred. There's secular places. There are only sacred and desecrated. I yeah. deeply understand yeah. that. And what happened was really interesting. So a lot of our new sprouts of ministry became real because we assumed what you just said to be true, mm -hmm. that this is not foreign space for the church to be here. And so I just started showing up everywhere. And so the, the show became a 
signal, a beacon, a, a lighthouse for people who had been burned over by the church or lost or were nearly done or those on either the inside edge of that line or the outside edge of the line with the church to connect. And like really amazing things started to happen around that. I, I was at a concert once and one of the radio owners came by and said, Hey, this listener wants to come meet you. And I thought that that didn't make any sense to my <laughs> brain. And this nurse who was probably late fifties came up and she said, I got to tell you, this station changed my life. And when I heard that they were going to let a Southern Baptist, she spit that word at me yeah. on the radio. I brewed a cup of coffee and I was prepared to hate, listen to everything you had to say. Yeah. And then I played heaven sent by Parker Millsap, which is a song about coming out to your family and wondering if the Christianity that you've been taught also applies to a young emerging gay man. Mm. And she said, I knew I didn't know you then. Wow. What a line. Oh yeah. And then that was the artist that we were all there listening to. And he played the song and she looked up, looked back up, caught my eye and we just both wept. Wow. And that kind of story and inhabiting that kind of space created like a layer of the congregation that was hard to pin down on any membership sheet, but for whom I was their pastor and that was their church. Funerals and weddings happened out of that space that's hard to define. And so I thought, well, Let's see where the spirit leads. And so we started hosting a communal song moment that um, I called Tavern Song. Hmm. And so we would just show up in the patio of a local pub and sing and invite whoever was there to do the same. And the most, um, the most amazing little moments would happen where like somebody on a date would be sitting there and they'd be surprised. Oh my God, this is some hymn that I remember from when I was a kid. And they would lean in and sing. And so the show and something like Tavern Song and the kind of table talk moments we would have led us into partnerships with um, folks for what we would call missions, right? So like joining with a local neighborhood that was largely marked with poverty or working closely and deeply with like mentoring and leadership programs with uh, the Chamber of Commerce, so like leadership making became a, a place where I would invest in chaplaincy time for like 40 leaders a year. I would participate in the mentoring uh, of, a, and I was a presence that could help them navigate systemic poverty and the religious issues that would come up uh, around race in the South. Uh, it led us towards uh, groups for infertility, um, for creating liturgies around that, for a vibrant community of mothers. It was an interfaith group, not owned by the church, but hosted by yeah. the church that was for all faiths and no faith. And it, it was a really large group of moms called Moxie Moms. And so all of these little shoots began to spring up in the church, but really not a lot of that is visible to folks who consider themselves 
status quo stockholders in the church's historic equities. And you were not investing in the programs and traditions that were sacred to them, that they thought this is what it really means to be this church. No, I also did that. It's just that th there was increasingly a, a sense of if the church did something new, the status quo would quickly deride it as not a good idea or dangerous yeah. before eventually accepting it mm. because it was, quote, successful. And so everything was an uphill slot. Every new thing was an uphill slot. Maintaining everything with excellence that had been happening, fairly easy to do, except uh, I would get tired of hearing the bemoaning that we didn't have enough families to offer up to the programming to make that machine work the way it's supposed yeah. to. And so the churches like that, and again, it's not just the one that I, I formerly served, uh, churches like that look so very thirsty, I think, to families who are barely convinced that church is a good thing. Yes. Because churches will come at them and like, if you don't participate at the same level somebody did in 78. That's right. Right? Yeah. They, they look upon you with suspicion and then uh, they sideline your influence. And so yeah. for me, it was having to explain that like the expectation that a family of five would participate in every single offered program yes. and be joyful at the timing, no matter when it was offered. And that if they did not participate at the expected level, that there was a kind of icing, right? There's kind of, it would get cold for them, yeah. the ministries that were there. But I have to hand it to the staff, like for the model that existed, they did it consistently and well. It's just, what do you do when the contextual needs of families radically changes and the model that you have set in a gilded frame yeah. has to change and you can't blame families for that change. You have to adapt. Yeah. And so there was already a lot of tension about any adaptation in that area. And so the, the, Increasingly, the church has metrics for health that aren't necessarily based in reality anymore. Maybe yeah. they're based in nostalgia or history. It, Walker Brueggemann would say, or amnesia. Or, yes, or amnesia, because, you know, the good old days weren't good or old for everybody, right? Yeah. I mean, people of brown skin were, were walked to the gate on this campus at some point. And so the good old days weren't good for everybody. Yeah. But they had experienced like major moments of spiritual growth over the years of being a church that was supportive of and open to women in ministry of, you know, but like many of our churches, you know, they still didn't really like talking about race. And so I would get folks who know better coming to me saying like, pastor, not everything is about race. And so, you know, this was a church that had a really interesting fertile ground for growth, but also a deep connection to history. And so what would happen, you know? So there was all this kind of built up hope and promise that was present. And then conditions started to change. And I think for me, it started to change 
we had started all of this kind of R&D Christianity, right? Like gospel Gothic or tabard song or hosting small groups outside of the church arranged around civic topics of ethical import. So I would partner with folks that churches don't normally partner with, like the local preservationist nonprofit, in order to have a lengthy conversation about redlining. So redlining in Macon is one of the reasons that that people who have brown skin are poor, right? Mm -hmm. It is the most redlined city in the nation. Wow. And it is a theological and ethical topic. And so we started doing stuff like that. And that um, those conversations about race and equity make people nervous. And so I would get a little bit of that, but not a lot. Um, but you start to stack up a few of the um, things that just happened between 2016 and 2021. <laughs> yeah. So you have Donald Trump becoming president and suddenly the church can't just be nonpartisan. Yeah. Anything political evokes a nuclear response. Yeah. Uh, I had a sermon where I advocated not for or against any politician, but the idea that immigration wasn't a theological issue. So like, Franklin Graham had had something where he said immigration was not a theological issue. And yep. part of my sermon just railed against that. Right. And that kicked up, you know, 10 guys in a clown car that wanted me gone. That's right. <laughs> but again, because I'm affable and I know how to pastor people, I don't get, like, that's not a big challenge to handle relationally. Yeah. You know? Um, until COVID. And so, you know, all of these things from the staff dysfunction to the current charged state of political discourse to the churches, the difference between like its imagination and like God's imagination in our area, it, it starts to get really concentrated um, as COVID begins to dawn. Uh, but my last really happy memory as the pastor came in the fall of 2019. And I remember thinking, oh my God, we're going to make it. This mm. is transformative. And it was a deacon ordination. And I looked out and like, it was like one of the big years, you know how there's an ebb and flow to these things. Yeah. And the leaders that were there were not like third generation families you know, just the next one lining up. But there were folks, some of whom wow, grew up Catholic or they were Jewish, you know, and in adulthood became Christians or um, there were community leaders who saw what we were doing and had joined and gotten deeply involved. Uh, or they were making transplants who, who you know, saw the, this vision of what could be. And each spoke about you know, our commitments to justice or, they were able to say out loud they felt that their gay child could come to church with them. Um, and that, uh, I think, made a lot of the uh, holders uh, their, of their perceived equity nervous. Yeah. Um, we did a significant church study with 
Bill Wilson's shop, Center for Healthy Churches, that began to name like this staff uh, structure that is long tenured and historically excellent is now a liability. Yeah. And I think the moment he said that out loud, you know, uh, yeah. things became more difficult for me. Uh, and again, this whole time I kind of put up with stuff like that behind the scenes. And so I think what changed in my ability to manage all of that emotional system, uh, you know, the, the ministry uh, has always come easy for me. I feel like that's a part of who I am. It feels existential for me, Yeah, how I move through the world. Um, but managing the politics of these discrete systems takes a particular set of skills of being in person. And, and so our family, our family had entered a, a kind of deep crisis, but also a beautiful opportunity about the same time. So right before COVID hit, um, and after years of suffering secondary infertility and some failed placements, we entered into a legally risky foster to adopt process uh, with four children in addition to our, our eldest son. And um, from the jump, their history of neglect and abuse became very clear in the tender moments of their coming to live with us and as they were acclimated to our home. Um, and so we entered a process um, of advocating for their care, of, of dealing with night terrors and much more than that. And the level of the world's brokenness seemed so very large to me. Um, and the complaints of church members who I once would entertain because pastors are a part of the plumbing system emotionally of a church. Yeah. I could no longer stomach. And so, um, and then COVID hit and everyone was broken. And we were wholly alone. Yeah. Uh, and for our children's spiritual and psychological survival, we had to fight legally. We had to advocate. Uh, we had to press. And while I'll not disclose elements of their history and the neglect and abuse. I will say that it was dramatic mm. and traumatic both. And the church was generally supportive in those spaces in a couple of months between our um, arrival and COVID. They um, had delayed my fifth year anniversary love offering. So they picked it back up and labeled it uh, a love offering for our children. And they were very proud of themselves for doing that. But over the next 
series of months as this wasn't a simple Hallmark story mm-hmm. that ended in 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, when it was clear that um, we weren't interested in telling them those kind of stories. Then quickly uh, the, the staff and others adopted um, the posture of, well, you chose that. Mm. And that became a thread that led to uh, the moment I decided I would no longer be the pastor of this church. So after the kids came home and after, you know, we had been engaged in this huge planning process for a couple of years, it's January, it's the beginning of 2020. Uh, There's hope on the horizon, right? Little did we know that March would shut everything down. Yeah. And I began to hear rumors that the staff were kind of out there in the ether saying it's him or it's us. Oof. And that's spiritual malpractice on the part of anyone that's ordained. So beginning of 2020, you know, as we start to lean into some of the changes, um, that were honestly kind of the church was hesitant about addressing staffing structures and the like. Um, the staff, any, any times change was on the horizon, the staff would go light a little fire somewhere for me to go put out. And so uh, one of the leaders in the church came to me and said, you need to know that your associate pastor, who by the way is married to the other minister, they're a couple, oh. is out there telling everyone that he's preparing his resume and that it's him or you. Now, of course, we have had no conversation about this, nor any conflict, because people who engage in passive aggressive and, and somewhat self aggrandizing behaviors don't yeah. actually have direct conversations. Right. About and so, you know, so here we have like, this perfect storm of folks who don't want to engage in, in the hard work of conflict and change now setting up a very dangerous position. And so, you know, I have conversations with my personnel committee about this, but also the, you know, the larger issue is not these kind of untoward behaviors. The larger issue is the church has to change structure yeah, because it cannot support the structure that it had previously. So this was the second or third time I had brought this up formally, the second or third time that there was some hesitation, but this time there was a commitment to deal with it. So I felt like we were heading in the right direction. And so we devised a plan and some clear metrics. And before implementing it, we got, uh, you know, the same notice that you did that the world needed to shut down. Yeah. So this is like March 8th. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, this is, that's the timeline here. So I felt it completely inappropriate in an emergency to engage in large scale staff restructuring. That's right. So I pulled everybody close into a life raft, told them how to log into Zoom, and we redesigned church in a week. Yep. And launched into the pandemic as safely as I knew how to do it. And none of us knew what we were doing, but thank God we had an emergency manager for the county in the congregation. So this, this guy's job 
to handle emergencies. And so, you know, we, we quickly organized around skeleton decision-making within deacons and with ministers and around us providing essential services, but also keeping separate. We took that very seriously. Uh, and I put all the conversations around dealing with their untoward behaviors or structural changes on pause because something more important is happening here. Um, you know, right. we, we, we have to deal with this. And so, um, you know, we, we entered 2020, um, you know, learning how to do digital worship and leaning on our, um, committees and also, um, deeply involved at home, uh, in the therapeutic needs of our kids. Yeah. And so this was a really intense time. And so, um, over the course of that year, you know, I, I thought we were maintaining things really well. Certainly the money was fine at the church during 2020. Uh, all of those metrics that stockholders care about, but stakeholders don't necessarily care about were well. Yeah. Um, and then something changed in 2021. And so, um, you know, it, it, the emotional tone started to change. Uh, anytime I, again, spoke about how difficult it is to offer therapeutic parenting to children who have had the experiences that we've had, I would hear this refrain of you chose this. Wow. And again, like I would hold back from this nuclear bomb of explaining exactly what my children haven't chosen and well and it's it's a version of that southern don't complain thing like we you're right. you're supposed to suck it up and they're probably used to pastors too who are barely engaged in the raising of their children right right so it's there are but, a lot of layers there but also elizabeth this was because our children had needs for trauma-informed care it changed the way these very ministers had to minister to them right and what they resented, they can't just do what's familiar and easy. What they resented was ever being told that something they thought was fine was hurtful to our children. Yep. And so when my wife had to explain that the ABCs of Lent, B is for bruise, is not something that should ever be sent to our home. Yeah. Was an opportunity for care for our family. Yeah. And it was used to like portray my wife mm. as a controlling person or a boss instead of asking the question, my God, what pain are you carrying? At no point were we offered that kind of care from yeah. anyone. Now, of course, there were people who would want to come and, you know, like read books to the kids and so they could experience that kind of grandparent moment. Yeah. But we didn't have a lot of help around unregulated space most of the second. Church was a safe place for them during the pandemic. It was the only other place besides our house we let them go. And right as we were entering into the reopening conversation. Um, kids are still not ours. 
you know, vaccines are out, but the churches, we were all trying to figure out what to do. That old conversation starts kicking up again. And uh, a member of my diaconate and personnel committee, uh, he sounds like a Flannery O'Connor character, Mangum. He is like a half-blind lumberyard salesman, right? So he's like a half-blind carpenter, invites me to his house. And he asked me um, if I was as sick of them as they were of me. Wow. And I was shocked. Absolutely shocked. And it was not, he was not there as a neutral third party. He was saying, are you as sick of us as we are of you? He meant the whole church. Yes. Wow. Right. Wow. And I was like, where's this? I thought he had cancer. You know, like I, I totally like went over there risking my health because, you know, like what vaccines weren't wholly out yet. You think it's a pastoral visit. You think that you're checking in on him. Well, yeah, he asked me to come by. And so I come and uh, it's the strangest conversation I've ever had in my life. And so uh, he he led with, are you as sick of us as we, all of us as we are of you? And I said, what? You know, here and here, I, you know, I thought he was the one that was ill and he, he sat there and like one feature that I have is I can, and this is probably a gift of the kind of parenting that we've had to learn. I can shift into neutral and people can say nearly anything to me and I'm hard to provoke. Yeah. Unflappable in moments like this. And so I knew that I wouldn't learn anything if I like bowed up or again, had to like protect my sense of how I perceive myself. And so I just let him talk for like 90 minutes. And he explained to me that I was bad at everything. Uh, Like I couldn't preach, teach, lead, do outreach, walk or chew gum at the same time. And so I asked, I said, I started asking him some questions and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to enter in a time of discernment about what you said to me, but I do have some questions for you. And so I asked him like, so what would success look like? You know, here we are middle of a global pandemic. The world is breaking. Deaths are ranking up. You know, I said, what would success look like? And he said, butts in seats and profit at the end of the year holy smokes well good for him for saying it out loud he didn't blink he didn't blink he knew exactly what he wanted and i said really and he said yeah and he painted that picture of every you know gilded sepia tone frame and every church of back in the days of plenty you know, uh, with no understanding of the changes in broad church attendance patterns, no one, no cultural understanding at all, and absolutely no understanding of what the pandemic meant for churches still. Yeah, that the world has changed forward. forever. Everything has changed forever. Yeah, just utterly blind in both eyes. And so I, uh, I had a hard time not laughing. Because it just sounded so crazy. Yeah. 
Uh, and then he explained to me that some people shouldn't be ministers and that I was young enough to do something else with my life. Mangum, he wasn't saying I shouldn't be his pastor. <laughs> he said I shouldn't be a pastor ever. Holy smokes. And I said, well, what, uh, what, what can you look back over the last eight years and seen the spirit at work? And he named all those things we had been doing that was facing outward. Yeah. It was interesting. Like he named that. Um, and so then I, I just kept asking him questions quietly again, just kind of plumbing to see um, what he would say. And I said, well, uh, sir, I'll call him, you know, it's not really the best time to enter a job search considering and he interrupted me and he said, so you're saying that has affected your job performance. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, your children. Uh... And I said, oh, I said, I was talking about the global pandemic that we're in and how it has affected people's ability to search and seek employment. And when we've got, been cleaning our groceries off with Clorox wipes in the garage. Yeah. And I said, you were talking about the adoption of my children. And he said, yeah, you chose that. Did you hear it? Same words my staff had been saying. And that's when I knew that there had been meetings. Yeah. And that's when I knew they were organized. Yeah. And it's when I knew I was in trouble. Yeah, it had gotten ahead of you. So um, I am not of the sort to hand out pitchforks and torches in my own defense. I thought that the truth and propriety in a pastoral way would lead us in the right direction. And Elizabeth, I was so utterly ashamed of what these people I loved were doing that I didn't want the new people in the church to ever find out that it had happened. Yeah. I, that was going to be my next question. What because, happened to them? You know, looking around at the families that surrounded mine, that were our friends and compatriots and all of their like elementary school, preschool age kids, these were people we drug into the church against their will yeah. who didn't believe churches were good for their family. These are people that we had spent so much time with simply living together that they wanted to be a part of this thing they saw emerging. And I was so ashamed of what I saw. I didn't want them to know. So I didn't tell them for months. I didn't tell them, um, from March until Pentecost in May of that year, I was pretty much under direct assault the entire time. And I didn't tell anybody. And uh, so I went from that meeting with this man. I told him that I would uh, take a couple of weeks to think about it and enter a time of discernment. Um. And he said to me, well, I'm glad I chose to talk to you today because it was going to be a lot rougher on you otherwise. 
And I'm looking at him like, are, are you saying right now, what in the world does that mean? Like, was he physically going to accost me? What? Or were they going to really, call a, me- a congregational meeting that you didn't know about? Well, they didn't have the numbers, Elizabeth. Churches that don't have the numbers engage in secrecy. Churches mm. that have the numbers make a decision. Yeah. And this church never had the numbers. So I went to my chair of deacons and chair of personnel and had a joint meeting with them. And I said, gentlemen, I'd like you to tell me what you're hearing. Yeah. And they said nothing. I said, you sure about that? And one of them said, oh, I mean, there's always a handful of people in every church that I've ever volunteered at that doesn't like the pastors, this or that. He said, but I'm not hearing it from, you know, and what he, what he basically was intimating was he wasn't hearing it from anybody that mattered to him. Again, because churches operate on a bi-level membership, some are stakeholders, others have equity. Yeah. It's not said out loud, but it's a part of the practice and culture of most volunteer congregationalist churches. And so because it didn't rise to someone that carried influence by way of money or power, uh, it, you know, and, and these, these men were incensed. They were outraged that this person would come and ask me to resign. Like this guy asked me to resign. From, from ministry altogether. Oh yes, yes, yes. That I should, you know, I'm, I'm young enough to do something else. Um, and so they thought this was ludicrous. And one of them said, well, you know what? Uh, I'm the chair. I'm firing him from his committee assignment and I'm going to sideline him. And I'm, you know, he was gunning for this guy. And I said, wait, yeah. If you do that, we will not know what else is coming. Yeah. And so I asked them to set a bear trap oh. and invite people to fillet me. I literally told them that you're going to have to become more comfortable with people filleting me in your presence. And I said, I believe the staff is involved. I believe that there are others who have been meeting. And I think we're about to have something happen here that you don't see coming. Mm. And he said, okay, well, I won't bring this up with him. I will, we'll enter into a staff review and see what comes out of it. Wow. And immediately they got a letter from some of these like, mid-level denominational workers who've retired in the congregation who've never been pastors, but they know how everything should work. Well, they sure do. Uh, These were people for whom I I played that pastoral plumbing function where you listen to them vomit bile at you once a year so that then they can go on for another 364 days. Um, And they were deeply connected to staff and they, launched the first volley of this organized email campaign at me, uh, but not to me. Yeah. To this day, not one person besides that first man has ever said a thing to me Wow. about any issue, practice, problem, 
something I missed, something I did or didn't do directly. Wow. And so during those months, uh, the personnel committee interviewed me and it was a very strange meeting. Uh, You could tell they were very angry at me and I couldn't figure out why. I think they were angry because other people were angry at me. Um, One of them was deeply angry at me. I later learned because I participated in some uh, civil rights for all conversations where I spoke as a moral leader and I got quoted in the paper, which was a death knell for a convert for a congregation that would never want to make the paper for justice, but quietly practice it. You know, they, they want to quietly practice it, but they don't want to actually make the paper for it. There it was in black and white that I had engaged in some trans advocacy. Uh, of course, that's the part that was quoted, the most controversial piece that I said. And so I later learned that this member um, was out there, you know, when he was dining at restaurants and bumping into people, uh, saying that I was too progressive to remain. Oh. And that I stood up for all those freaks and weirdos downtown. I'd like to have that tattooed on my back. Yeah. Like we're all freaks and weirdos downtown. Um, so things started to get more complex when this moved out of a staff problem and engaged people that were perceived to be stockholders with equity here. Yeah. Because now it wasn't just people who didn't matter to my church leaders. Now it was people who by their tenure or presence were perceived to own more of the church than others. And that's when the tone started to shift. And so um, in large measure, the, the kind of bear trap worked. A lot of people fell in it, mainly the staff who had been organizing with other groups in the church. And they came in hot and heavy, demanding my resignation, uh, offering no actual thing that I had done or not done um, that could, you know, be said. They said that I was in control of everything, which deeply offended the church leaders they were talking to. Um, and they kind of outed the fact that they had been in this ongoing conversation. And so I, I think that further enraged this personnel committee. Um, and in our system, the personnel committee only has authority over the other personnel, not the pastor. And so they made a decision to fire the associate pastor. Oof. I don't know if they ever communicated that to him, nor do I know if it's true, because our communication wasn't exactly two-way at this point. Um, so and then they came to me, and they asked me to not disclose or publicly acknowledge that any of this was happening. Oh, gosh, so many secrets. Oh, we're only, we're only as healthy as our openness and authenticity. We're only as sick as our secrets. And so they, they, uh, you know, he came back to them and asked them, uh, yeah, apparently he already had a job lined up here in town. So he, you know, never risked anything until he had a backup. So he told them that, uh, give him three weeks 
to take this job and you know he'll just transition quietly and they told me um you know they they laid into me for these allegations that they would never explain they just said that we're getting mail about you and you're going to have to do better and i would ask them what i would need to do better at and they would say everything like they couldn't name any one thing wow. uh, the most the clearest thing I could get out of them that one man in the room was upset that I brought a list to a meeting instead of emailing it to him before the meeting. And I couldn't eat like these minor processy type issues yeah. or, um, you, you know, you, um, you tell people you'd like to get coffee with them. Then you never set the coffee. And I'm like, yeah, pastors say that to open a conversation of, Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. And you might end up talking to someone for 90 minutes on the spot. Yeah. And the exchange, the pastoral exchange happens, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And so I know you do. Uh, and so I was like, okay, well you tell me who the, who's emailing you because if there are people who I have wronged by being a human or, or simply failed in some way. I'd like to know it so that I may enter into, you know, a forgiveness process with them. And they refuse to tell me anything. So now I'm in the position of being completely alone, completely blind to what is happening. And still, I loved this church. I loved them. And it was why I felt it was worth to bear the excruciating pain of this season because it was a deep sense of calling that kept me there yeah. and I didn't flinch from it. Yeah. And so what happened next was well, expected for all the pastors listening out there. I honored my commitment that I made to remain silent for a few weeks and they launched a secretive expansive email campaign um i'm told um i was never told who but occasionally they would make a reference or two that i could sniff out yeah um but they would never really address, you know, basically, you know, these people just don't like you anymore, you know, is, is what it ends up feeling like because they don't point to any actionable items. Yeah. So it's all moving towards a head. Uh, I get invited to another meeting. Uh, I have since, but because they won't tell me any one thing that I have done, or they won't provide me with a list of metrics. They won't, you know, white paper, a plan of yeah. you know, pastoral engagement. I created one of my own, uh, because they had offered me a three month sabbatical because I qualified for one. And I told them that pastors don't leave in the midst of a crisis. Uh, and so I authored a plan to help me retool post pandemic because I knew where we would be, you know, of reconnecting with some mentors throughout CBF life. Uh, so people like George Mason and Alan Walworth or Bo Prosser, uh, or, 
business administrators like Phil Martin and, um, and others. And so I crafted this legit discernment moment for myself to try to squeeze something of meaning out of all of this bluster because life after the pandemic would be forever different. And if we survived this moment of congregational conflict, both I and the church would be different too. And they took it and kind of tossed it aside um, as if it were nothing and just said, well, I don't know if this is going to be enough to stop them. Mm. And I was like, who, who are them? Yeah. Who are they? And again, they wouldn't, you know, apart from the people that were in the room that I know were deeply engaged in trying to get me to leave. Uh, but who in this room would, you know, report that they weren't remember like the guy that talked to me at the beginning of the story is sitting in the room. Wow. So I have to pretend that he is objective in these conversations. <laughs> oh, geez. So what ends up happening is um, the church decides not to get rid of me, but they put me up in front of the deacon board for a vote of confidence. They don't call it that. Um, now the personnel, personnel committee at most Baptist churches can't do anything to the pastor besides yeah. hurt their feelings. And the same was true of this one. They have no authority over pastoral position, practice, anything like that. Um, but they, you know, had decided to make a move on this associate and also decided to let him leave without ever telling him or anybody else that, um, and then they come back to me right before Pentecost. And they say, we have decided to let him go, whether he has a job or not. And we also think you need to leave. And I said, you don't have the authority to make that decision. And they said, nevertheless, um, we think you need to leave. And we're going to tell the deacons that on Monday night. Wow. And I said, can you provide me with the reasons that you are attempting to fire me? And he said, no, it's just everything. It's just everything. Uh, right. Another one of the members said, they won't stop until you leave. So it's not about me at that point. It's yeah. about this other set of you know, bad actors that are out there. And so this was right before Pentecost. So I, I preached a fiery sermon that day uh, because in this whole time, you know, I'm still preaching every week and teaching. None of that changed during these moments of distress. And I told them, uh, you know, I know that you think you're carrying fires of Pentecost here but you're not and these torches are going to burn the church down wow and uh, I was offered a golden parachute after that sermon that I refused wow and they said well this will keep you from going in front of the deacon board and I said I have nothing to hide yeah and so the next day uh, the second staff member resigned the spouse of the one that they were going to fire, um, or at least they told me that. And um, so 
we go into this meeting with this group of people willing to take the church headless now rather than to deal um, with their own discernment or any sense of transformation or even to calm down the inflammation in the body enough to ask vital questions about the church's future. Yeah. They just wanted it to stop so badly. Um, and so with the resignations of the other staff members, they still put me up for a deacon review in one of those three and a half hour meetings that everybody talks about. And they kind of, and I had to go to, and then it was asked to leave, but I wasn't told what they would put forward directly. And so I asked them, I said, well, what are you going to say in this meeting? And they said, we're going to give a report to the deacon body that you and the associate pastor should leave. And I said, wow. he's already resigned. So you're saying that I should go? And I looked around and I said, does everyone, I polled them. Uh, apparently they had never hold for a vote. And I said, you, they said, we've only, we've done this by consensus. And I said, I want to know if everyone in the room thinks that I should leave. And people started saying out loud, I don't think that you should leave. No, I no longer think that's the best course of action. And so even though they didn't have the numbers in the room, because the person with the perceived power and influence yeah. who had economic ties to the other men and women in this room outside of the church yeah. um, thought that they should proceed. They did. And about, I don't know, 75 to 80% of the deacon body supported my pastoral leadership and they wanted the church to move forward with me. And my annual evaluation was a few months later. So they, they moved that back uh, six months and overwhelmingly supported the direction of the church publicly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, people, you know, spoke passionately, I'm told about, um, where the church was headed. Uh, but you know, again, I think the folks were that consider themselves to, possess more of the church's identity yeah. uh, and to uh, consider themselves equity owners in a world where everybody else just rents space on a pew, yeah. weren't going to have it. And so um, the next day the staff announced their exit and were able to set their own timeline. Wow. And I was extremely gracious to them, never confronted them was asked not to, uh, I crafted for them an exit that they could be proud of. I never talked about the fact publicly that they had committed an act of pastoral malfeasance and yeah. leveraging their jobs to fracture the church. Um, and we celebrated their 30 ish years of ministry, collected love offerings, held receptions, Wow. And I was a dutiful host the entire time. I let them uh, serve communion uh, on their last Sunday so that they could 
receive and look in the eye of all of these people with whom they had such a history. Wow. Um, and I made sure that their time was honored because they too get to be more than their worst elements yeah. and their worst days. And that was very important to me. It was not important to anyone else in the church eight weeks later when they told me I had a week to clean out my office. Wow. So they left a few weeks after all this went down at Pentecost. And I was the only staff member left in the church. And so I did everything alone in a moment where we had a hiring freeze. I ran camp, printed bulletins, everything, everything. And um, still they would acknowledge my pastoral improvement plan that I had crafted and would say things like, I just don't know if this is going to be enough to silence them or convince them, whoever they are. The unnamed they. The unnamed they. But they did begin to like poke at me in every area they could. And so when they couldn't get at me by challenging my ego needs of being a good pastor, they drug my wife's name through the mud and tried to talk about her in personnel spaces pretty much willing to break any generally accepted HR protection imaginable. Uh, and I would say like, I'm uncomfortable speaking of my spouse in a meeting that's designed to speak about my performance. Yeah. Do you have anything else for me? Yeah. And the answer was no, but I also wouldn't blow up and lose my cool, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, they basically, derided her in negative ways. And one, one of the members told me later that, uh, well, you know, if I didn't want to talk about the real problems, they were so frustrated that I wouldn't let them, you know, dine out on her in this space, uh, because she had deigned to volunteer in the church, um, or to, you know, offer any direction about how our children should be served, um, with the staff. So, um, Oh, here's, here's a full circle moment. Uh, as they talked about the need to hire new ministerial staff, uh, I got a speech from uh, the main, uh, you know, the main church equity guy uh, who considered himself the largest giver in the church, whether he was or not, I don't know. That, you know, can this next minister we hire be attractive and athletic and straight and something that young men can look up to? Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. And everyone else in the room looked at their shoes and wouldn't say a word. And I just looked and these are grown, grown people in their mid, mid fifties to late sixties who would not offer a bit of correction to the 86 year old man with economic ties to their families and jobs outside the church. They would just quietly roll their eyes. And Jake, we know that this story is not uncommon. I mean, no. the details might be different. Right. This happens everywhere. So they let him, quote, talk about my damn wife. That's a direct quote. Wow. I literally heard him say that in the hallway of one of these meetings. 
um, and with no correction. So there was no accountability for bad actors in this system. But we had survived this moment where the rest of the church, once they learned of this, had come together. I had third-generation church members who were Donald Trump supporters banded together with yellow dog Democrat city councilmen weeping that they had discovered a brotherhood when they realized they cared as much about this church and where we were heading under my leadership. So we, we were coming down a runway and starting to get lift. Uh, families were joining the church during this time. Uh, I ran a children's camp alone, which is a hilarious thing because I can't dance or sing those songs. Uh, we hired some temp staff and we're heading towards seating a choir. And so even in the midst of all of this, we were experiencing new life and growth, but the larger church body was deeply inflamed due to what had happened over the past six months. Yeah. And they just decided they weren't going to do it anymore. So outside of the process and in a moment of breaking covenant with me and with the board, uh, they came at me again and said, here's the package that you will take. And I said, that's what I said no to, you know, 16 weeks ago. And they said, well, um, we think you should take it. And I said, or what, you know, again, I'm, you want to call a meeting? Let's talk about calling a meeting. No, they really didn't want to call a meeting. And so when churches can't vote you out truthfully, they will spiritually abuse you until you leave. And in this case, they knew that I had to recertify for our foster to adopt process. They knew that the parents still had rights. Uh, they knew that we faced an uphill battle and that there might be conflicting, con conflicting legal interest at the point of adoption where all of this could blow. And they promised to me that it was about to get public and loud and that the amount of money that I would get would be dramatically reduced. And so finally one of them said the quiet part out loud, like take the parachute now or it goes away. Mm. And if you face any trouble with your adoption, then that's on you. Wow. Uh, and we'll make, and he said, um, I'm sure the money will be less too. And then the other one chimes in about how they want to protect me. Oh, geez. And yeah. Oh yeah. They still tell the story from the perspective of mafia protection. Mm. Let us protect you, they said, from these people who were so willing to come at you. And so from our perspective, the people that were the cabal of they and the people who were negotiating so harshly with us are just a part of the same abusive system. And now that church for us will always be in line with every other human being and system that abused our deeply, deeply hurt children. Yeah. And so with zero regard for where we were from a therapeutic standpoint, they gave me like a week 
to get out of there. I had to announce the next Sunday. I asked for more time, and they told me no, that if I didn't do it, they would announce publicly for me on Sunday. And so I took their deal, um, and I left. And it still to this day feels like they removed a part of me that, that was not theirs to take. Yeah. And it is a violent act against my sense of agency and calling that I don't think they understand desecrates that space. Yeah. In a way that they can't fix, they can't carpet over it it desecrated something that was holy um, with no thought to a spiritual covenant. They yeah. used every single tactic they could. But then, you know, wanted to pretend that this was just like any other employment decision of transfer, yeah. uh, you know, wanted our kids uh, to be there and to, participate in the reception and I told them that I'm not going to hold their nuts and punch to make them feel better mm -mm. at what they were doing walking my children the wrong way down the aisle yeah so our kids never set foot in the church after that day until we took them there to say goodbye alone one Thursday night and we developed a liturgy where they could say goodbye to their classrooms Wow. We let them put stickers in the rooms that were meaningful to them and imagine the people that they love and say goodbye to them to light a candle. Uh, and then my wife invited them to place their finger on an ink pad and go and pick a spot in the church to leave their fingerprint. Mm. And my son wrote his name on every whiteboard he could find, his initials, and he would write, LJH was here. And I was slayed. Yeah. Because I knew what would happen after that, because it's not just our family that got booted. It's anybody with any sense of what was yeah. going on was also gone. Yeah. So after I left, they changed bylaws. They rolled back a whole deacon year. They went into the next year with just one single elected church leader. Completely, completely set a depth charge so deep they had no idea what its fracture would bring and you know i see those families we're still friends with many of them we church as nomads together but many of them have simply left church forever and have said i can't do that anymore one family said they did this to you and it affected me and not one person from that church has ever called me it was the last family that joined and so the amount of pain out there yeah. of folks that would call me yeah. wanting me to pastor them through this yeah. pain. And I, yeah. there's no way for me to do that. Yeah. And so um, I, I do not understand why someone would choose after the trauma that we had uh, endured with this um, congregational and staff action we had survived that they would um, 
allow this second blast so fracture the church. Yeah. Because they would, in order to keep their own agency, avoid resurrection with such a resolute, life-defying set of choices. And so they booted us with a technically generous but evaporating set of protections that they called them um, that we had no idea if it would last long enough to uh, for us to finalize our adoption or not. But I was staked to the ground here, unable to move. And we had a lot of need for this not to be said until our adoption was finalized and they knew it and benefited from it the entire yeah. time. And so we survived uh, this. Uh, but so many of us bear wounds from it. Uh, and it's still to this day difficult to see the families with whom we churched who have simply left organized religion, institutional religion, because of its willingness to commit such violence out of its self-protection. And, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that desecrated space yeah. within me or the space that exists between me and that institution. Yeah. But the, it's like Elizabeth, it's like they set it in Amber where we can't get at the point where healing could take place because it has now been so frozen in time. Yeah. I just want to sit with that for a minute. I don't want healing. I want to burn it to the ground. That I think that's why I named this podcast Beyond Religion is because I have gotten to a place that religion is just another business. Religion is just another part of capitalism. Religion right. is just another system and structure that maintains illusion and appearances. And I do not have time to keep up appearances. I do no. not want to live under some kind of false illusion. And if being a pastor means that you are the keeper of the illusion, that you've got to make sure that smoke machine keeps blowing... I don't, I don't want any part of it. And I have not been hurt like you have. I, I've dealt with the petty, but I haven't dealt with the full-on assault. I, Yeah, I, I still can't make sense of it. And maybe I never will. Maybe they can't either. It's a unique moment in time for every reason that we stated earlier contextually. But, you know... The typical move is for ministers to participate in this ego game of never speaking about it. And these moves are just these awkward announcements at the end of services where people get surprised that their pastor has voluntarily resigned. Yeah. Well, I'm at the strange place of at the time I, for the sake of my children's lives, could not speak publicly about it. Yeah. And for the sake of my golden parachute, while I did not sign some sort of garish NDA, it was still not within my economic interest yeah. to speak about it. 
Um, but all, all of those moments where the person who's up there saying, uh, you know, I have found this new opportunity and it's time for me to go. We never tell the truth about yeah. those transitions ever. And the people who acted in secret and violated their covenant as deacons and Stephen ministers yeah. and just human beings never get named. It's always yeah. concealed under this genteel church rug. It is. We're, and, we're, we are protecting the institution that we have loved, even as it assaults us on the way out the door. I, I know so many different pastors who have left either their churches or ministry altogether in the past five years. Mm -hmm. And I was at um, a conference in Atlanta last weekend mm -hmm. and saw a, a minister on a staff in Texas who has, I know that he has been an instigator in making life miserable for senior pastors. And it was all I could do. I, I, I attempted to avoid him altogether. I didn't right. even want to have to make small talk with him. Um, I, I, I just can't. Um, I have always, since I was a, since I was a teenager, felt called to this work. It is a work that I still feel called to do, and I still feel like I have a parish here in Macon. Yeah, because I was serious when they asked me to discern my place, uh, and it's not a space that I will disinhabit anytime soon. However, I'm kind of done with churches who need the minister to keep the facade, like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no interest in fulfilling the collective ego needs of 1950s church babies. Absolutely. I don't care about your cradle role. I don't care about your budgets or your buildings or your bylaws. Yeah. And if you don't care about the broken people in your town, I don't care about how much money you want to make off of this year's investment spread. Yeah. Um, I don't care about these ridiculous denominational identity conversations that we have where it yeah. sounds like someone who is begging for a wrench gets offered. No, you need to use snap on tools instead of craftsmen. And they're like, man, I need a wrench. And you're like, no, 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 don't use this. It's the wrong brand. I can't deal with any of that. So they have blown up my tolerance for BS, which oddly enough was a keychain one of my deacons gave me like a year before all of this went down. Um, an anti-BS keychain. He felt like he felt that within me. Former minister, lovely guy. Um, but I'm done with all of that. I think a lot of people are. Yeah. And I think... It's, it's a way to, to add kind of a, a complexity to people we normally simply label duns. Um, you know, these are, these are folks who are done with the church, but not just because the church is heading in a direction they don't like. Many of them have been abused by the church, yep. ignored by the church, excluded by the church. I, I'm just not interested in those conversations. Like not I used at all. to hold up, I used to say things like, I don't think our church is ready to be welcoming and affirming. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, that died in me at this church. 
even before this experience. Um, you know, so I, I'm only interested in being as honest with myself as possible um, and as truthful as I can with these communities. Uh, but I, you know, I, I have a lot of reservations about the churches in our general work yeah. who remain addicted to the nostalgia of success yeah. by the numbers. Absolutely. Um, and I think they are dangerous places uh, for people who see the world feelingly. And so That's even not... in spite of all of that, you have found yourself still in a pulpit on Sunday mornings at 101 The Creek. Is that what it is? So, 101.3? I did keep all of my... I did keep all of my ministry things as mine as yeah. part of the exit. Uh, so it's still a sacred space for me. It's kind of a ritual. Um, I it's it's a place for me to experience a a quiet, holy setting, um, and to to feel a bit of the spirit's innovation. And so most Sundays I'm there doing a nearly live show. Uh, that mixes kind of devotional musings with a liturgy of Americana music. Um, but also in these other settings of, you know, uh, storytelling, I've gotten really into the storytelling community here in Macon. That's not a sacred space, but it's a sacred thing. Yeah. Uh, like those moth groups or um, I'm discovering Mangum what, I'm discovering what the nonprofit world sees when it sees the church. And I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated and disturbed by it both. So I work in a nonprofit. I work at United Way across um, homeless intervention, housing advocacy and services for a few counties. And to see the scattered church through that lens and to not be in a gathered church is, it's really eye opening. Um, I don't think our churches know how meaningless charity is. <laughs> but they love it. They love they collecting toiletries. They, oh my God. You know, I, I think about all of those bulletin boards over the years of senior adults collecting soup cans for this yeah. or that or clothing yeah. for the Salvation Army. Yeah. And that kind of communal charity is not meaningless, but it's not impactful. Yeah. I don't want to strip it of its meaning, but it has zero impact on these big problems that I see. Well, it's certainly not justice. And I've got, I've taken some flack um, among my colleagues in town. I, I was railing, railing against charity versus justice and, and offended a congregation that is really good at collecting things for different crises, which again, it's important. You know, when Listen, there's a crisis, it's good to have somebody to bring you a muck bucket. And also right. you have to ask questions about, why are these tornadoes we, hitting more and more? Why are hurricanes hitting more and more? Why are these people hungry in my neighborhood? My my present job has me staring the complex issue of uh, people experiencing homelessness squarely in the face. And that's an area where, oh my, the toxic charity abounds. Yeah. Oh, we all want to donate things that fix symptoms of these yeah. problems. But the minute you talk about a system, I mean, this is that well-worn adage. Uh, you know, you're you're a communist or a liberal if you start talking about the system that mean that the system that allows human beings to be unsheltered. Right? Mm. We want to hand out coats and cots and cheese, 
and take pictures for our church's Instagram page. That's right. Congratulate ourselves. Um, but I'm more interested in mending the world yeah, in a different way with people of faith and no faith in different ways than what I've been doing. Yeah. So I'm learning a lot about that from this perspective and I'm thankful for it. Honestly, um, I'm thankful for our colleagues and I pray for our colleagues that find themselves in churches that are as abusive as mine was and also are just, you know, stuck in this malaise of ministry as the church has its, you know, rummage sale yeah. in this 500 year block. Um, so I still attend, uh, we split our time mainly at a Methodist church here in town. Occasionally I go to the Baptist church across the way It's pastored by a friend. Um, but a long time ago, a dear friend of mine who used to be at Wilshire as the missions minister, his name is Brian Burton. Um, he left ministry for nonprofit work before it was acceptable to be wholly known by a church in his mm. fullness of himself. But he said he just traded serving the gathered church for the scattered one. Mm. And so I don't see any less of the sacred in the world. Oh, I would say I see more. <laughs> I see, I see less of the pious, but desecrated spaces. And I yeah. see more of the dirty, but sacred spaces. Yeah. So my first week in this new position had me beneath an interstate, um, doing an encampment outreach in advance of a clearance that had to happen for public safety reasons. And the pylons, um, went up high like a cathedral ceiling. And as I walked around and had to explain to these people that their home was about to be taken down by uh, an earth mover behind me, yeah. I was struck with the kindness and compassion that they offered in response to me, knowing that they were about to pack up everything that they owned. And in each case, no matter how, dysregulated the person might be, they offered more civility than the people I asked to wear a mask in church for the sake of everyone's health. Wow. And I can't unexperience that. Yeah. I can't unexperience the compromise of good people who were so willing to shred us to nothing um, for the sake of continuing this institution, people who knew better and still know better. Yeah. Uh, and not just the abusers who were still in the church, but also those who simply chose to stay knowing that the church had blood on its hands mm. out of some hope to keep it as a moderate stronghold here in Macon. What does that even what mean? What is what that even mean? That's what I was just saying. What does that yeah. even mean? So I know that we're in a time of transformation, personally, my sense of calling, errands. And I don't know who we will be now, but I know what I'm not returning to. Yeah. And so we're still, we're still healing from this experience. It's not something that I think we'll get through uh, anytime soon. I mean, every picture that comes up of our children 
is in that place and it hurts mm. every time. Yeah. You know, it was our whole life. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm going to try to stay connected to that sense of calling and to some sense that I'm being me in the world. Yeah. Um, and to let go of all of those things that were hurled at us. I think it's, um, it's, it can be really difficult because of how we talk about call that it's, you know, it's this very divine, holy thing. It's very easy to mix that up with a job. And yeah. I, I know that that has been part of my growth in recent years is, um, well, and in the years that I was having kids and not, not working full time, who am mm -hmm. I if I'm not working in a church? It has been a, a ringing question and. Now oh, I realize I be... that's, that's, that's a ridiculous question. It's the wrong question to ask is who am I when I am fully and wholly alive? There because is. that is who I'm called yeah. to be for the good of the world. I, I realize that when I'm seeing with clarity, I can't sit and nurse my wounds too much when I know uh, that there are equally and more so gifted um, women who have never had uh, you know, that space, I, you know, I know that there are folks who have been excluded from leadership in the church and that's a different kind of abuse. And I, and yeah. so I don't want to, you know, this is not it, while it is a vile story, sadly, it's not the worst story I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, it's not the worst. It's not the only yeah. there are many. I mean, we've already talked for over two hours and we could spend the rest of today moving into the gossip space of telling other people's stories that we know, um, right. which I, right. it, it, I, I, I'm just less and less interested in the, even the idea of reforming the old system. No, I, I would rather start something wholly new. Yeah. Um, than to walk into a place and worry about it's deferred spiritual maintenance and maturity, both. Yeah. I just can't. I don't want to deal with uh, their ghosts. Yeah. And I don't want to deal with the lies that they've been telling themselves. And I don't want to be the object of their historic transference and projection. Uh, we have to come to a different space. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to say. Is it time for another lap? <clears throat> I think that we'll have to take another lap when we'll pick it up next time with. What's this other space that we're going to go find, yeah. make, explore? Let's leave the desecrations behind. Yeah. Thanks, Jake, for spending all this time with me. Always good to walk with you, my friend.